0: TheYeshiva.net Okay, good morning everybody and welcome. They tell an anecdote about a German man who came to his Catholic priest one Sunday for confession as is the tradition in Catholicism. And he says, Yes, Father, I am here to confess. What have you done, my son? He says, during the war, I hid a Jew in my attic. And I'm here to confess. And the priest says to him, son, it's not a sin. You saved the life of another human being. You saved the life of the people who preceded and mothered our religion. It's not a sin at all. No, no, Father, I have to confess. He says, what? I charge the Jew 50 marks every week to keep him in my attic. And the priest says, my son, maybe it was not the most noble thing to do to charge somebody to save their life. But you know what? If he would rent your attic in a good day, he would pay rent and you charged him this money not only to stay there but to save his life to conceal him from the Gestapo this is not a sin my dear son he says father, father I have one more question am I obligated to tell him that the war is over (laughs) so confession is sometimes not what it looks like and today, I want to uh, be ambitious and make a bold suggestion. And that is that we bring confession back to Judaism. <laughs> now, confession is usually not associated with Judaism. The word confession, although we have plenty of confession in Judaism. But when most Jews hear the word confession, they're associated with a very different Way of thinking in a different religion, with booths, <laughs> and Sundays. We spend our Sundays in Costco, not confessing. But uh, there is another dimension to confession that we're often unaware of. The word confession in Hebrew, in the original Jewish way, is vidui, and here we come across an astounding and fascinating anomaly. And it has to do with a mitzvah, a law, in the portion, in the parsha of Kisavai. And this is the law known in Chazal, our sages call it the law of Vidui meiser. The confession regarding meiser, regarding uh, tithing, regarding uh, segregating, giving part of our produce for charity, for tzedakah. That's what meiser means. Meiser literally comes from the word Me'esser, Or meiser, which means a tenth. a A tenth part of our produce, or whatever item we're referring to. And this is the confession about meiser, about tithing. And let me give the background to this mitzvah. The background is, the Jewish people living in their own homeland, owning farms, fields, orchards... gardens, were obligated to separate, to give part of the annual produce of the crop, the vegetables, the fruit, and the grain to the poor. There was a system, and the system was a meticulous one, and it worked in seven-year cycles. And it was a fascinating system. Each year, there was a different, somewhat of a different obligation. There was year one and two, then year three, then year four, five was a pre- repetition of one and two, then year six was a repetition of year three, and then year seven had its own unique status. Year one and two, if I am a farmer, I am an owner of many farms or, or it could be a large farm, one farm, many farms, and I grow grain, wheat, barley, spelt, oats, rye. I grow fruits. I grow vegetables, I grow legumes, different types of crop and produce that I'm going to enjoy, and my animals are going to enjoy. Year one and two in this seven-year cycle, when my produce, I'll start with produce, but it's true also with fruits and vegetables and legumes, and uh, of course grain. But let's talk about grain. I have a hundred stalks of grain that grew. Usually it was more, but let's just use the word a hundred, the number a hundred. A hundred stalks of grain. Two percent of that, year one, went to the kayan. The kayan, the priest, priests, kayanim, who worked in the base, amigdush, and were dedicated completely to teaching the people, learning and teaching, and did not, were not in the world of business. They were given two percent of produce. That means I ended up with 98 stalks. This was called truma. Done. Then, 10% of what was left over, I have 98 stalks of wheat. 10% of what's left over, I gave to the Levites, the Levian, who were also poor. This was known as rishon, The first Miser, the first tithing. 2% of the Kayin, I'm left with 98 to the Levi, to the Levite, this is called my seritian. So 10% would be, uh, 98 would be 9.8. And now I'm still left, I'm still left with, uh, let's say 89, just to uh, give an even number, let's say 89 stalks of grain. Now another 10%, say of 89, which would be 8.9, another 10% of grain I had to bring to Yerushalayim. And eat it and enjoy it there. This was an opportunity for every, every Jew to spend time in the holy city, in the capital city, to bask in its holiness and its ambiance. It also helped the economy of Yerushalayim. It filled it with people. It filled it with action. Money was invested there. People was, people were there. It was good on a material level, on a spiritual level. And this happened throughout the year. This was the second tithing. This is called Meisr Shani. So I'm left now with, let's say, around uh, 81 stalks. Again, I'm evening it off. And the rest is completely mine, free to do whatever I wish. Year two, this was repeated. Year three, almost everything was the same. 2% to the Kayan Truma, 10% to the Levi, Meisrishin. But the next 10% was not mine to go to Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Rather, it went to poor people. In addition to the various donations that were given to to poor people from fields and orchards, known as leket, Shikcha, peya, and other halakhis, this was a special 10% tax that you give to the destitute, to people who were needy. So that was, instead of Miser Shani, it was substituted with Miser Oni. The Koyan got his 2%, the Levi got his 10%, the poor person got his or her 10%, and then again, the rest is yours. Year 4 and 5, you repeated the traditions of 1 and 2. Year 6, you repeated what you did in year 3. Year 7 was the sabbatical year, the year of Shemitah, when all fields and orchards and farms were deemed Ownerless. Ownerless means, meant that everybody had equal access to them. Me, the owner, but everybody else, including animals, including Jews, including Gentiles, including domesticated animals, everybody, every creature was free to enter the field. God says once a year we have to let the earth rest. Don't work your field, don't harvest your field. Just like everybody else, you can also go into your field and take food for your family. But I can't use it as a source of revenue, to take my fruits and sell it on the market, to make money off it. Just like everybody else, I could take the fruits and vegetables and produce that me and my wife and my children need, or my animals need. But there's free access equal access to everybody, and therefore there was no percent that I gave the kaya and the levi, the poor person, because it wasn't mine. Everybody had free access to my field in Shemitah, and then year one after the seventh year, year eight, the cycle repeated itself. This was very general outline of how the agricultural cycle worked in the Holy Land in Eretz Yisrael When the Jews settled it, this was the obligation that was related to the sacred soil, and hence what grows from the soil of Eretz Israel Every three years, the Jew had to make sure that he or she fulfilled their obligations. That means, since the cycles were really three years, because one and two were the same, year three I changed, and then four, five, six, I went back, four, five, six was a repetition of one, two, three. So after years one, two, three... I had to make sure that I gave all the taxations, all the parts of the produce, I gave them to the right people. So what would I do? At the end of year three, I had to make sure and check that all the produce, fruits or vegetables from year one, two and three were given to the proper address. The Kohen, the Levi, the poor people, Yerushalayim. What if not? Let's say year three, I was stressed out, and I didn't have a chance. So now is my chance to fulfill that duty, fulfill the obligation. Let's say year one, I couldn't do it. The truma is still in a closet somewhere. It's still in a closet. It's, way, it's in my silo. I have to make sure to go and bring it to the kayan. Initially, I shouldn't delay it, but if I did, you have the first three years, and then there was a special mitzvah. And this mitzvah is a very interesting mitzvah. It's called Vindui Meiser. And it was done on the last day of Pesach, the last day of Pesach, the end of Pesach, in the fourth year. That means, one, two, three years I had to do whatever I did. If I didn't do it one, two years, one, two, three, I had till Pesach of year four to fulfill my obligation. At the end of Pesach, I made a declaration. It's called the Confession of Mysore. And then this cycle repeated itself. Year 5, again, was like year 1. Uh, well, year 4 was like year 1. Year 5 like year 2. Year 6 like year 3. And then year 7, I had to make sure I fulfilled my duties from four, five, six. And on Pesach, once again I made a declaration that I fulfilled my duty. This declaration is a very interesting one. A Jew would come to the Beit Hamikdash if he could. It was Pesach, so most Jews would come. But even if not, you can do it in your home. You could do it in your in your uh por- in, your, in your porch or in your home. And the Torah says exactly what you would do. And I'm going to read the psukim. Perik Chavov Pesach Yud Beis. Deuteronomy twenty six twelve. The Begsheni, the beginning of the second Aliyah of Kisavim. I'll read and translate. When you'll finish tithing, all of your grain, in the third year, the year when, the year of Maiser, meaning year three, you don't give Maiser Ishma, Maiser Sheini, instead... You substitute it with Maisir Ani, so it's called Shnas HaMaisir because you only repeat one of the Maisirs of the year before. You'll give your tithing, the 10%. Remember the third year, it goes to who? The Levi, the convert who's often poor, the orphan who's often poor, the widow who's often poor. You don't take it to Yerushalayim, and they will eat it, and they will be satiated. This is the third year. Via Marta. After you finish tithing, the third year's tithing, you have to speak to Hashem. Now when do you do this? You can't do this on the third year because there's still things that grow in the winter of the fourth year that began in the third year. So they're still part of the cheshbon of the third year because they're only picked, they're only harvested in the fourth year. Some, some, uh, some fruits end up growing in the winter of the year four, so they still belong to year three. So therefore, you will finish your meister of the third year and the fourth year. On Pesach, You speak to God. What do you tell Hashem? This is your confession. I removed all of the sacred food from my home. I didn't keep it for myself. The sacred food, which is the food that goes to the Kohen. The food that goes to Yerushalayim. This is called sacred food. I removed it from my home. The Gamat I also gave it La Levi to the Levite. Remember this is my Sirishan of years one, two, four, five. I gave it Lager to the convert, the alien, the foreigner, the refugee. La Yosim, I gave it to the orphan, La Alman, I gave it to the widow. Remember this is year three and six, when you instead of giving it to Yerushalayim, you give it to the poor people. Exactly I followed the entire commandment that you have commanded me. I did not transgress your commandment. And I did not forget anything. There was not a stalk of spelt, oats, rye, grain, barley, wheat. Not a vegetable, not a fruit. Not a kiwi, an orange, an apple, a watermelon, or a cantaloupe. That was removed. That was not taken. That was not reckoned. That was not tithed. I did not forget. When I took the food to Jerusalem, I did not eat it in mourning. I ate it in joy. Many of these foods are sacred. I did not remove it from my house when I was impure. I did not use it for dead causes. I listened to the voice of Hashem, my God. I did... Everything exactly as you instructed me to do. A declaration. Every Jew made this declaration. If you owned any earth, if you owned any fields or farms, you made this declaration after every three years of the Jewish cycle. And you made a statement, Hashem I got it all right. I did it all impeccably. No transgression, not even forgetfulness. And now he concludes. Now you look down from heaven, from your sacred residence in heaven, and bless your nation Israel, and the earth that you have given us, as you have sworn to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. The end of the mitzvah called, vidui meiser, Confession of Tithing. Which brings us to... That which, at the surface, would seem extremely strange, and that is why would the sages call this vidui meiser, the confession of tithing. Did you hear any confession in the words of this person? When we usually speak about vidui confession, what does it sound like? <laughs> What does our confession look like on Yom Kippur? What does our confession look like every day? Tachnon. You remember? Ashamnu, bagadnu. You know what these words mean? Ashamnu, we have sinned. Bagadnu, we have betrayed. Gazalnu, we have stolen. Dibarnu, doifi, evinu, zadnu, chamasnu. He comes to Yom Kippur, the day dedicated to Vidui. Alchaitz. The list of Al-Khaites, Al Khait with this, Al-Khait Shaqatana with this, Al-Khay Shachatana with that. Valkulamalay Kaslika Islachlan Kaprlano on these khatayim, on these sins, on these transgressions, on these errors, on these mistakes, willingly, unwillingly. That's what vidu is. In English as well, we confess, we express, we verbalize mistakes. We verbalize errors, we verbalize sins, transgressions. We express remorse, we apologize, we take accountability, and we make resolve for the future. Astoundingly, the Chazal named this Vidui Meiser. And I ask you a question, Rebaynir Shaloyla, where's their confession here? The man gets up, and he said, I made no mistakes, I got it all right exactly as you said I didn't even forget anything I'm not even going to say I made a mistake there were no mistakes it was perfect and he goes on to extol his praises his virtues how flawlessly this was executed Without a trace of error. Iniquity. He lost sight of nothing. And he finishes, If you didn't get it yet, God, let me make sure you heard it again. I didn't do 90% of what you told me. I didn't do 99% of what you told me. I did 1,000% of what you told me. And now, you bless us. Now imagine, you come home this evening, your husband comes home this evening, and he looks at you and he says, I have to talk to you. You're like, hmm, my husband is going to talk. Not something they usually do. What, what? He says, I have to make a confession. Hoo, 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 I have to make a confession. Now we're ready for the next hour. Your heart is quite, uh, let's call it triggered or aroused and you sit down on the couch privately, nobody is there, and you say, yes, go ahead. Your curiosity and emotional curiosity knows no bounds at this point. What confession? is my husband going to make? In your mind you start replaying every conceivable scene that you sniffed out for the last 29 and a half years anticipating the confession. You don't yet know how to emotionally react because what is he going to confess about? What is this man going to say he did? And he looks you in the eyes and he says, my dear wife, I want to confess to you that I am the most perfect, impeccable, flawless, human being, husband, father, that has ever traveled this planet. I never made mistakes. I have fulfilled my duties to the T. I never even forgot anything that you asked me to do and I did not do. In fact, I may be the most perfect person who is alive today. I followed every one of your instructions, everything you want, I execute perfectly, impeccably. This is your husband for you. And now, wouldn't you fulfill what I would like from you, and give me a delicious dinner, or whatever he defines as a delicious dinner. Now, call him normal, call him tight meshuga. I don't judge people. One thing I know, a confession, it's not. (laughs) How normal he is, how sincere, I'm not going to get involved in local domestic issues. Don't call this a confession. Call this a declaration of greatness. (laughs) A declaration of perfection. It's not vidui. (laughs) What did he confess? In fact, he wouldn't even acknowledge that he made a mistake. I didn't even forget anything. Not only did I not do anything willingly, I didn't, by mistake, I didn't do anything. The first one I saw to raise this question was the Sifarno. Rabbeinu Avadiyah Sifarno was one of the great commentators on Chumash printed in the Chumash Mikraiz Gdailas. He lived in the late 1400s, in the 15th century. And the beginning of the 16th century, he lived in Italy. He was a physician, a great doctor. He was a philosopher. He was a linguist. He was a great sage and rave and a biblical commentary. He has his famous Pirish on Chumash that is studied till today, the commentary of the Sephardim, Rabbeinu Avadya Sephardim. And he is the first one I saw who discusses this question. The answer he gives is, I'll read it to you. It's a short comment in the Sephardim. On the Yud Gim will be He says essentially, the work in the Beis Hamikdash by the Koinim and the Levium was supposed to be performed by whom? By the by the firstborn in every family. In other words, there was not supposed to be a family from the tribe of Levi that produced the Kayanim and the Leviim who would represent the Jewish people in the Beis Hamikdash. Every family had its own Kayanim and levi. Every family, or almost every family, had its, or many families had their p'chayim, their firstborns who would do the void in the Beis Hamikdash, and therefore they would receive the true man, the Meister. That's the vidui. He says the vidui is that because of. The sin of the golden calf, when it was taken away from the B'chayrim, and given to the koyanim and the levim because the entire tribe of Levi remained loyal, and did not engage in the creation of the golden calf, as we learned in Parashas King says, Moshe says, Mila Hashem Who still belongs to God, come to me, and who stood up? The entire tribe of Levi, none of them who erred, in the creation of the Egal Azov, the golden calf, 40 days after Sinai, after the giving of the Torah, this is what this Jew is intimating when he says, I had to give it to the Koyan, to the Levi, because I can't keep it by the B'choyrim, and that's the Vidu. True, the main theme is, I did it right. But there is a hint here to the fact that I had to do it right by removing it from my house. I had to remove it from my home. It couldn't remain anymore in the home. Because I'm not a Kayan, I'm not a Levi, I have to take it out of my house and give it to the Kayan and the Levi. My serisha and truma, this is a result of iniquity. It's a result of, a, of of a blemish, of a mistake, of the fact that things are less than perfect. Things are less than ideal. Which would explain the term biarti hakodesh min The word biur, like biur chametz, means elimination of chametz, extermination of chametz. This man didn't exterminate the holiness biarti. He removed it. He gave it to the Kayan. But the biarti means the fact that I had to clean my I had to remove it from my house. In other words, it can't remain in my house. It can't be eaten in my house. My house is not the space where this level of holiness can be present, and therefore I had to do beer, hakoydish min habayas. It had to go elsewhere. That, according to Rabbeinu Avadia Sefarno, is the meaning of vidui meiser, Which, of course, is an interesting interpretation, but yet it still begs for explanation. Because let's face it, the theme of this declaration is not, we sinned, and therefore the koyanim got to do the avoid that the b'choyrim was supposed to do. That's not the theme, it's not even mentioned. It happens to be that there's a detail here that reminds us of iniquity. But the thrust, the theme that the Jew is saying is, I got it all right. Yes, in that statement, we will recall a mistake, a sin that was once done, as a result of which this mechanism was put into place. But essentially, your message is one of an expression of greatness, of a positive action, in fact, a perfect action, not a confection of iniquity. So today I want to explore another interpretation. And this was suggested by Rabbi Yoshe It's a famous book he has called Chamesh Drashis, or Russia known as Bris Avais. And uh, I'm going to elaborate on it according to the way I understood it, based also on some of the teachings of the Baal and his students. We have here a fascinating concept that was written more than 3,000 years ago in Torah. Namely, that God believes that from time to time, not always, but from time to time, a person has to be able to stand up and verbalize, not only think, but verbalize how good they are, and how good they're capable of being. It's important for people from time to time, to verbalize how good they are, how beautiful they are, how successful they are, not in a generic, meaningless, or foolish way, not in a haughty, pompous, arrogant way, but rather in a specific, directed, and focused manner. There is always one area, one aspect of your life in which you are a success story. And you need to be able to see it, articulate it, and verbalize it. In this mitzvah, the Jew is commanded, commanded, that he or she specifies that as far as tithing, miser is concerned, this person has done a magnificent job. I need to be able to get up and say, God, I got it right. This guy got it right. And this is a mitzvah. It's not even voluntary. It's an obligation to speak about your goodness. About something great you did. Which of course answers another question. God knows if you gave sir or not. Why are you making this declaration? I understand when I'm confessing a mistake to you. I say I'm sorry, I did this. It's vulnerable, it's an expression of remorse. I understand when I'm telling Hashem I made a mistake, I do it for me. But here you're telling Him you did a good thing. He knows. With all the details, the point of course is, it's not whether he knows or not. It's, I have to be able to articulate this. But Why is this called a confession? Why would this be called a confession? Granted, it's a good thing to do. And the answer is, maybe, one of the very powerful fundamental truths in Judaism and generally in the growth of every human being. And that is only when I am capable of articulating to myself and to my God my greatness, my majesty, my beauty, my goodness, my dignity, my success, my purity, my achievements, my accomplishments, internally and externally, am I also capable of regretting mistakes, of repairing errors, of mending behaviors, and of experiencing remorse and fixing sins, transgressions, and mistakes? And I want to explain to you why that is. Say, I come to an event, and I eat and I have a very nice clean shirt, like I'm wearing today. And there is chocolate mousse cake with a... F- what do they give at these chasanas? What is it called? Those fountains? Uh, what are they called? They have a name? Chocolate fountains. You know those fountains? Okay. And I'm having a week night. Week as in week, not as in week. And uh, I gravitate. My uh, genetic chemistry it's not me, it's my genetic chemistry, gravitates to the fountainhead that flows not with milk and honey like Eric straw, but it flows with chocolate. And in my great passion and eagerness to fill my system with some of this delicious chocolate that will numb a little more of my pain, by mistake you know somebody gives me a push wants to say shalom aleichem when he gives me a push and the whole uh, plate or cup of chocolate goes right on my wonderful beautiful tie on shirt and i'm covered with chocolate from head to toe you know you probably know the feeling and it's not water it's chocolate and then as i'm walking away to go to try clean myself somebody else trips over me and all of his fruits, or her fruits, and uh, colorful fruits, also falls on my shirt. At this point, it's really hopeless to start focusing on cleaning my shirt. This is a lost case. This is where surrender comes into the picture. Now, if somebody needs to pour something out, let's say, chulid, leftover chulid, I'll say, do it on my shirt. <laughs> I mean, this shirt has been officially metamorphosized into what we call a shmata. I don't have to protect the dignity of a shmata. A shmata is made to serve as a shmata. But this is not so funny when it comes to people's internal lives. If I see myself, essentially, as a loser, if I see myself as filthy, as dirty, as unworthy, as lowly, as somebody despised by God and by humanity, as somebody undeserving, I can't really regret my mistakes. You know why? Because, essentially, this is part of who I am. It's almost like this is what I'm made up of. My shirt is dirty. A little more dirt. Nobody will notice it. Only when I'm wearing a shirt that is dazzlingly beautiful, clean, organized, put together. Now when there's a stain, I look at it and I say, this stain doesn't belong here. Only when I see myself as a good person, as a pure person, I say, I am above the stain. I am not the stain. This doesn't belong in my life. I am better than this. I am bigger than this. I am larger than this. I am not petty. I am not small. But if I see myself as petty, as small, as primitive, as dirty, as undeserving, okay, a little more dirt. I don't even notice it. To be able to do vidui proper confession of mistakes in my life, of transgressions in my life, of wrong turns in my life, I have to, and really experience remorse, I have to feel that my true I is more than these mistakes, is far deeper, far holier, far sacred, more sacred, and therefore I notice them, therefore I'm bothered by them, I'm perturbed by them, This really does not belong to me. It's not me. It's not I. It's not my real I. I go and I clean it. There's something more. If I cannot acknowledge my greatness, I can't even accept accountability because I see it almost as inevitable. Of course. I'm a nobody. These things happen. To be able to experience remorse, I have to be able to acknowledge my power and hence my accountability. I was capable of doing it differently because I am the master of my life. I am not a victim. But if I cannot acknowledge my greatness, I can't experience real remorse because this was inevitable. It's not my fault. It's this one's fault. It's that one's fault. It's how I grew up. It's because of what happened here, what happened there. I am just playing out other people's dreams. I'm playing out other people's lives. I'm just part of somebody else's script. I can't really take responsibility for my life, I don't own my life, I am not a king, I am not a queen, to be able to take ownership of my life I have to say I'm independent, I'm autonomous, I'm a master, I have infinite power, I could have done it differently. I'm in control. What is even more? Part of real confession means I resolve that in the future I'm going to change it. How can I accept on myself to change it in the future? If I don't feel the tremendous, great, positive power that represents my true identity, my true personality, and my true soul. Somebody who cannot appreciate how great they are can never really confess for any mistake. Imagine, I'm going to go back to a couple. You point out to your husband that he once again made a mistake. Does that ever happen? Okay, maybe once in 40 years. But remember that one time your husband unfortunately made a mistake. And you pointed it out to him as a good Jewish wife. And this is the response. Of course. Today I made a mistake? I always make mistakes. In fact, I am a mistake. In fact, from the day we got married, you were always right, and I was always wrong. I will never be right. You are always, always, always right, honey, and I am always, always, always wrong. Wow. Sounds so noble. (laughs) What confession. What humility. You know, there was no confession there. Somebody who tells you you're always wrong is basically telling you... Somebody who tells you you're always right and I'm always wrong is basically telling you you're impossible. I will never please you. There's nothing I can do to get it right. I will always be criticized. In other words, I am never wrong. The issue is with you. You got issues, and I will never ever be able to satisfy you. This is a passive-aggressive way of... Doing the exact opposite of a confession. A confession means when I tell that person, I often get it right, but yesterday I got it wrong and I apologize for that. I get it right. I made a mistake. That's a confession. If I'm always wrong, what I'm saying is, I'm never wrong. You're impossible. It sounds like a confession. You know it's not. When somebody gets up to God and says, I'm always wrong, I'm always bad, that's not a confession. That's a form of either passive, aggressive apathy, anger or frustration, or complete self-denigration, where I paralyze myself and I don't believe in any goodness of me, there's absolutely no confession. What do we say in Shir Hashirim? Shechirani v'nava b'noi Yerushalayim. I am dark, speaking about spiritual darkness, and I'm beautiful. King Solomon was the one who coined the phrase, black is beautiful. I am dark, and I am beautiful. But what does this mean? This is the expression. This is what vidui means. Real confession, I have to come to Hashem, or come to another person, or come to myself, and say, I have darkened my soul. I have darkened my moral sense. I have done something to compromise the morality, the dignity, the sacredness, the majesty of my life. In thoughts, in words, or in actions. I did something wrong. I said something wrong. I apologize. But right after Shechayrani, there's one more word. Vinava. And I'm beautiful. If I don't feel the Nava, I could never feel the Shroirani. Again, because if I am a stain, I don't notice stains. If I am a piece of beauty, I notice stains, and I'm bothered by them, and I want to remove them. They don't fit in well with my system. I say, Das is Nishmir. I am a Khailik Elaikami Mal mamish. I'm a piece of divinity, I'm a fragment of heaven. I'm a part of holiness, I'm a ray of infinity, I'm an expression of eternity, I am part of the divine light, this doesn't belong to me, this is not me, I don't have to reduce my existence to this type of petty, small, insecure, immoral behavior, I am greater than this, not pompously, truthfully, genuinely. I can also take accountability, I could say, yes, I could have done it differently, that's why I'm remorseful, that's why I'm apologizing. It was not inevitable, I am not a victim anymore. Maybe I have suffered in my life, maybe I have endured pain in my life, maybe when I was a child I couldn't discriminate what is me, what is not me. True, but today I am in a very different place. I can choose. There is an I who contains everything in my life that I can choose. Number three, I can choose not about the past, but I can also choose for the future. That's why before we go into Rosh Hashanah, Aseresimeh Truva Yom Kippur, where there is a major focus on vidui, on confession, Ashabnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibarnu Doifi, Alcheid Shechatonu with this, Alcheid Shechatonu with this, Alcheid Shechatonu with that. And Yom Kippur, we will do it, how many times? Around nine times. It's a lot. You do it by Mincha, Erev Yom Kippur. And then, <coughs> some people have a minute to do it themselves before Kol Nidre. You do it by mayriv and then by Shachris, and then by Musaf, and then by Mincha. And then when the Chazim repeats the Shemay it's done a second time. And a whole time we focus on how many wrong things we did. The sins that I have committed, the mistakes I have made, the transgressions I performed, I apologize, I regret them, and I resolve for the future that I will not do them. Before we get into that period of the year, we read Parshish Kisavoy. And in Parshish Kisavoy, we learn about a different confession. And in this confession, I get up to God and I say, Here I am. (laughs) I did it all right. I did it impeccably because you cannot go to the confession of Yom Kippur and Aserisim Eichuva and the whole end of Elul and beginning of Tishrei if you first do not have the vidri of Parshus Kisavai. The confession where I get up to Hashem and I verbalize and I articulate how good I am, how good I'm capable of being. How perfectly I performed this particular mitzvah. This confession is the prerequisite, it's the foundation, it's the underlying paradigm, catalyst and springboard behind the next confession. If there's no nava, there's no shechayrani. In fact, we do this in the beginning of every confession. It's a fascinating expression. I'm not going to have the chutzpah to say that I'm a tzaddik and I didn't sin. Rather, I sinned. Now imagine you wronged somebody else. So you come over to them and you say, I want to apologize. You go ahead. And you say... I'm not going to come and tell you that I'm a tzaddik and I didn't sin. I'm going to tell you that I sin. Oh, come on. What do you give me this introduction? Just start confessing. Just start apologizing. When anybody, when, you know when people come to you and say, By the way, I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> Why do you think I think you're lying? <laughs> I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. Why do you have to say this? Why? Often you lie. Why are you telling me that you're not lying to me? Just tell it to me. You think I think you're lying. Do you think you think you're lying? Do you think I think that you think that I think you're lying? What is this about? Truthful people don't give this introduction before conversations. (laughs) I don't lie. This is what I'm telling you. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. This means this person is operating in that paradigm. Is it a lie? Is it not a lie? Is it a lie? You come to Hashem and you say, I sinned, I made a mistake. Hashem no. I'm not going to tell you that I'm a tzaddik and I didn't sin. It's almost like I could tell you. I lent you uh, $20,000 for an investment. You come to me and you say, I say, could I have back the money? You say, no, I don't have it. A year later, you want to apologize. You come in. I'm not going to tell you that I'm a tzaddik. Really? You're not going to tell me you're a tzaddik? What a tzaddik you are. Then you're not going to tell me you're a tzaddik. But the truth is that that's a prerequisite for confession. Because before confession, you have to realize how much of you is a tzaddik. You have to realize that you have a soul that remains absolutely pure and sacred and divine and holy and impeccable and wholesome throughout all of your life's experiences. There is no mistake and sin in the world that can tarnish and destroy the essential relationship between a Jew and his or her. It can be blocked. Its expression could be compromised, its light can be dimmed, and I may not be able to feel my light. But the core light remains essentially wholesome with its full sacredness and intensity throughout. Only when I recognize that, only when I recognize as a part of me, a sisi kikhoila then does the confession really, really have power. Because it comes in the context of your goodness, of your beauty, of your dignity, of your nava, of your majesty. If it comes in the context of how bad you are, it looks like it's confession. It's not confession. It's your husband telling you, you're always right and I'm always wrong. I'm never going to get it right. That's not confession. That's a form of passive aggression or complete self-destructiveness. So I'm not going to tell you tzaddikah khatana because really there's a part of me that is a tzaddik. But now I'm going to focus on my mistakes. I'm not going to focus on the fact that there's a dimension of me that is completely pure. It's true in our relationship with Hashem. It's true in our relationship with ourselves. It's true in our relationship with other people. It's true also in our relationship with our children. Meaning, very often your child comes home, school is starting or still started, and they come home with the report cards. And some of the report cards of your children you were always eager to read, and some of the report cards you knew you are going to dread reading. Sometimes when you see on the telephone ID, you see the call of the principal. You know, okay, here we go again, the fun is starting, and we still didn't hit Rosh Hashanah yet. Thank God for this wonderful new year. When we look at the report card, we right away always see where the child did not do well, where the child did not succeed, where the child did not fail. So yes, maybe some people in the sometimes would right away focus on that and berate the child. Today, people focus a lot on positive conversation and positive reinforcement and, and bringing out somebody's mindless and greatness. But even with that, I could still focus on the failure. And I could say, you know, my entire kind. I see you really, really did bad in this subject. I see you really failed in this subject. Let's examine it. Let's analyze it. How can we make it better, etc. Which seems very good and very noble and very positive. But sometimes what happens is, I reinforce the sense of failure in the person I'm talking to. There's another approach, and that is, why don't you highlight successes? Why don't you bring out to this child, I noticed How good you are in this area. I noticed how you behaved at home when this occurred. I noticed what you did in Shul. I was once in Shul, and there was a little child. And he david (coughs) shmaneser with his tati, with his father. And then he went to play. And he came back much later. And his father asked him, Where were you by Kriya Satayr? Where were you by the reading of the Torah? And the child really did not... uh, respond in any way that the father wanted. He should respond on the contrary. It was was a very negative interaction that I happened to be present by. So I told the father, I think next time you would be much more effective and successful if instead of noticing what he didn't do, you would notice and accentuate what he did. So many Jews are so bored in shul. That's why all the shuls today have pamphlets and magazines. You see that? On all the tables. So that way, if you're sitting, you shouldn't be too bored. So there's a lot of reading material. People come to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur with stacks of books. I had a guy in shul. He used to come with three novels, three psychology books, and three history books. I said, why? He said, this is for Shachras, for Musa, for neilah, and so forth. Your child is a little kid, and he came here, and I saw you, Davin asked her beautifully, for three, four minutes, why don't you talk about it? Tell him. Build him up. Show him that you noticed it, accentuate the beauty of it, the power of it. The same is true in every other area. He's doing or she's doing well in one subject. Don't just be nice about the subjects that they're failing in. But build up the successes. I noticed how well you did. Speak about expectations in this area, possibilities in this area. What did you accomplish? It's not only you focused on the positive. You turned your child into a success story, rather into a failure story. And there's always a success story that you can focus on. You know what happens when you turn somebody into a success story? They themselves want to fix their failures. If I'm a success story, I don't want to fail. If I am clean, I don't want to be dirty. If I am a success story, I feel that I'm better than failure. I'm greater than failure. But if I am essentially a failure, what's the difference? <laughs> I failed yesterday, I failed today, I'll fail tomorrow. That's my story. And then I search for successes in completely different areas, which may be very, very different. my <sighs> maiser bring out a story of his or her success. They say a story, it's a very deep story about the Balatanya. He went to raise money for Pidyan Shvuyim. There was a family in captivity. It was one of those stories where they owed rent to some pirates overlord, and he took the family and threw them into captivity. It was a devastating tragedy. And they needed to raise money to be able to pay off the debt of this Jew who owned an inn. And the Baal HaTanya, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, went to raise the money. And he came to a city, and he asked, are there wealthy, affluent Jews in the city? So the leaders of the community said, there's one Jew who is filthy rich, but he's a comson. He's a miser. And every poor person tries. But he has this custom, he gives everybody this old, rusty, copper coin that he has. It's probably been in his closet for 40, 50 years. It became so rusty that when you look at it, it doesn't even look like a coin. It's worth nothing. It's one little coin. It's like a penny by us. And that's what he gives to every person who comes for charity. And they end up taking the coin and throwing it in his face and leaving the house. So therefore, they said, Rebbe, it would really be a waste of your time and energy to go to him. The Baal HaTanya said, I want to go to him. And he asked two of his colleagues, two other colleagues to escort him. And they said, okay, of course. But he said, there's one condition. They said, what? The condition is you're not allowed to say a word. (laughs) I run the conversation here. (laughs) Nobody says a word. They're like, no, no comments, no feedback, no responses. As long as we are in the vicinity of this man. Fine. They escort the Balatanya. They knock on the door. The miser comes out. Balatanya comes in. He sits them down. And the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, relates the whole story. And the miser, the rich man, looks at the Balatanya and says, Wow, what a pitiful story. How heart-wrenching. How devastating. How can a family suffer so much? Let me see what I can do for you. And he comes back five minutes later with a rusty coin. It's like I would come to you to raise money for somebody very, very ill... They need $85,000 for a surgery and literally you would send me away from your house with a penny or with a nickel. This is what he gives the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, a rusty little copper coin. And the Alter Rebbe looks at the coin and he says, wow, thank you. That's so special of you. I'm going to write a receipt for you. (laughs) And he writes a Kabbalah. Beautiful. And he he bestows upon him brachas. You know, of you should be blessed with all goodness, materially and spiritually, with health and happiness and prosperity. All the beautiful brachas. And he gives him the receipt and he takes the coin and he leaves the house. And as they're leaving the house, the colleagues look at him and say, Rebbe, you should have taken that coin and thrust it in his face, that dirty, filthy, horrible miser. He says, we made a deal. Shh, shh. They leave the courtyard. As they're leaving the courtyard, was a beautiful estate. They leave the courtyard. The man comes out and says, "Rebbe, Rebbe, come back. <laughs> comes back, sits him down. He says, tell me the story again. He repeats the story again. He says, what a terrible story. He says, you know what? I think I want to give a little more. And he goes and he brings another ruble. That would be like a dime. Another ruble he takes out and he gives it to the baltani. He says, Wow. That's amazing. I am so, so appreciative. What a great deed you are doing. What an expression of love and goodness. And he sits down with patience to write another receipt. Another Kabbalah. And he showers him even with more blessings. And these colleagues are astounded. What are you wasting your time with this? Today to nut blood, Sucking your blood for nothing. And again he tells them, We made up to be quiet. And this repeats itself a third time. And he gives him another few ruble and he writes a receipt. And then the last time, as they're leaving the courtyard, he summons them back and he says, I decided that I want to pay for the entire sum of the redemption. I'm going to give you all the money. It cost around 20,000 ruble, whatever the number was. And he gives, and he gives the Balatanya all the money. And they leave. As they leave, they ask him, they say, Was this a miracle? What happened there? He says, It wasn't a miracle. What happened? Explain to us. First of all, how did you know this is going to happen? What was your cash? What were you thinking? Why didn't you get angry? Why did you give this dirty miser receipts for this horrible narcissistic way of behaving towards you? So he says, This man is not a miser. He behaved like a miser, but he's not a miser. He's not a miser. I want to tell you two things about him. Number one, I understood there's a reason he's doing this. There's a reason he's doing this. I want to explain to you what happened. <laughs> You'll see a psychologist, a <laughs> real psychologist. He said, This man was once a very, very poor Jew, very poor. And he always used to see people gift-stuck. And he was envious. He can't give. He can only take. And one day he decided he's going to gift-stuck. But all he had was an old rusty coin. You know what he did? A poor man was collecting, and he took out the rusty coin and he gave it to him. You know what the poor man did? Threw it in his face. He says, you filthy mither, you don't give this to me and this crushed him at the core of his soul it made him feel like an essentially essential shmata unworthy at that moment he made a vow and his vow was I will never I'm going to build myself up and I will never give charity if somebody doesn't accept this rusty coin of mine nobody ever did everybody threw it in his face I know I have to accept the rusty coin. There was something else. Because of this, he never knew the value, the geschmack in giving. Giving to people. I don't want to call it a selfish thing. It's not a selfish thing. But there's a tremendous, tremendous sense of accomplishment of achievement, of goodness that you experience within yourself by giving something to somebody, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. When you give somebody dignity, when you give somebody your time, your space, your love, when you give somebody perspective, when you build up somebody's life, in a small way or in a big way, it's not only the other person's life is transformed, your life is transformed. You're operating in a divine space. You become a creator. You're a giver just like Hashem. You're not just a taker. I'm not a parasite. I become like the boy I emulate my creator. My creator creates life and I create life. We become divine when we give. He never had that feeling. The first time he gave, it was thrown right back in his face. For the first time in his life, he experienced the feeling of giving and it being received and making a difference. And the appetite grew. And when the appetite grew, he called me back. I didn't have to go back. I want to do more and more. And then he did the whole thing. He looks like a miser. He's not a miser. So the real introduction to vidui, the real introduction to Ashamanu, Bagadnu, Gazamu, Alchait, the real preface the real foundation, the building blocks that allow for the Alchit and the Ashamnu to be truly powerful, truly penetrating, truly effective, and truly transformative is Vidu Y'meiser. Is the ability for the human being to feel the promise of their life, the infinite potential of their life the divine beauty of their life, the unwavering dignity, majesty of their life, the heavenly purity and sacredness and wholesomeness, the confidence and the joy that they have at the core of their soul that nothing and nobody, not even sins, can wipe away or take away, only conceal. When the person can experience that, and when the person could get up and articulate it, Then the shamnu bagadnu follows, it flows. Last night, I was at a wedding in Lakewood. And uh, I was there, and I was there for a while. So somehow, don't ask me how, but somehow, another three events developed. (laughs) And after the wedding, which finished quite late... I was asked to come to a Kumsitz for uh, young people who are struggling with uh, terrible illnesses. May they have a complete and speedy recovery. And they had a kumzitz, and they came together. Uh, Ms. Sameach did it in their new place, new beautiful place in Lakewood. So I went there late. And I was there for quite a few hours. And we spoke, and we schmoozed, and we sang, and we danced. And then I noticed the volunteers, and it was already very late at night. I got home a little before dawn. You know, Lakewood to here is not so uh, close. It It was late at night, so thank God we didn't get stuck in traffic. And as I was leaving in the car, I saw a young boy outside over there where we were, and it looked like he was a volunteer. So I I gave him Shalom Aleichem, and I wished him a good year. And I told him that you have a light that's radiating from your face. I meant that you have something uh, on earth that radiates from your face. And I want to tell you that it looks to me that you have tremendous positive energy, and you could do stuff to change the world. And I hope you'll do it, because there's a big light in you that's waiting to illuminate the world. He looked at me like I fell off, not from the moon, but from some black hole 48 billion years further than the moon. Falling off from the moon is not so far, as you know. Some people have done it. But some far black Mars is a little further. He looked at me, he said, you're talking to me? I said, yeah, of course I'm talking to you. Who do you think I'm talking to? There's nobody else here. We said, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning, there's nobody else here. Of course I'm talking to you. I'm just telling you what I think so he looked at me like with this blank look for 10 or 20 seconds and then he said thank you thank you and he walked away and we drove away and I told the person who was driving me I said look at this boy I don't think every, anybody ever told him these words he was shocked to hear it and it wasn't words I invented these were genuine words I saw it in him I, I felt his energy I saw it in him But nobody ever told him those words. They told him the words of (laughs) Ashamnu Bhagadnu. They told him that he has to say (laughs) Ashamnu Bagadnu Al Khait. I'm sure somebody told that to him. I saw that as well. But before I could tell somebody to say (laughs) Ashamnu Bagadnu, which is important, it's important for me, for us, for every person, to be accountable, to live up to our deepest and highest potential and to fix our mistakes and to apologize for them, and to be remorseful, and to express regret, and to express for the past remorse. And the main thing is resolve for the future. Which is what Shuva is. and Kabbal And means verbal expression. But the prerequisite for that, the foundation for that, must always remain the truth. And that is that you are an infinite gift. And that God loves you unconditionally. God loves you the way you are, and He takes pride in what you can be. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by theyeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net.